And this last lecture, I'm sorry, it's the last Jack for the moment. Thank Kathleen. Yes, on yes. Phenomenology of Rilke. Yes, Rilke's phenomenology. Because yes. Yes, yes, yes. And I read him first in Bichner and Spender's translation, I think in the 40s or the 30s. Yes, 30s, I think, even, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yes. I thought this was active. Yes, yes, yes. I didn't know very much about it. Yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you, Kathleen. In fact, um, before I really start on what I want to say this evening, ladies and gentlemen, I can pick up Kathleen's uh, reference to uh, reading Rilke uh, as he was translated in the 30s by J.B. Leishman and Stephen Spender, because um, this is important, I think, to realize that both with Rilke and indeed with Kafka, who was translated into English at roughly the same time, what tended to happen, of course, that these two major figures were taken out of their tradition, translated into English, and then absorbed. Okay, they make their impact, fair enough. Rilke had only died in... 1926 in any case. But what I'd like to suggest to begin with, and indeed the first half of this um, lecture relates directly to what I'm going to say now, is that in order to understand Rilke, and indeed Kafka as well, you really have to reset them in their own tradition. They make much more sense. You can't abstract them, as it were, simply out of the German tradition, however you define it, and kind of read them. Obviously, uh, you get something out of them, but as I hope uh, the first part, at least, uh, of my lecture will show, is one gets much more out of, say, people like Rilke if one relates him to um, the place and the tradition where he comes from. Now... um, Rainer Marie Rilke can be approached from a number of fruitful angles. But I would like to begin by seeing him as starting life and his poetic career in a special place, Prague. It is not that like Franz Kafka, his great contemporary, also born in Prague, he used the city as the geographical and spiritual center of his work. Rilke spent almost all his adult life away from the city of his birth in a restless exile, moving from Munich to Berlin and Bremen, Italy, Sweden, Paris, and finally Chateau Musot in the Swiss Valais. Apart from extended uh, travels to Russia, Spain, North Africa, and Egypt, most of which, however, uh, uh, these countries and places, I mean, imaginatively seized upon, reappear in one guise or another in his poetry. That is important. Indeed, as we shall see, Rilke's response to and transformation of the places, cities, and landscapes he visited and lived in were truly remarkable. Nevertheless, Prague, I think, has a complex and special impact Um, And indeed, flashes of its special identity, visual or atmospheric, break into the early poetry. But quite beyond and below this, the bearing of Prague on Rilke, as on Kafka, I think was profound. First of all, we must remember that although part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire during the last 25 years of the 19th century, that is, during Rilke's first 25 years of life, Prague was going through a Czech nationalist awakening that encircled it with isolating effects. In his book, Kafka and Prague, Johann Bauer has this to say. The German-speaking community, which had hitherto borne all the marks of a social elite, was gradually smothered by the influx of racial Czechs from the countryside. It became more and more shut in on itself and succumbed to a form of degeneration marked, among other things, by extraordinary intellectual subtlety. The historically progressive, thrusting, biologically healthy Czech element stood in contrast to the German and Jewish enclave of businessmen, state officials, and an increasingly rootless intelligentsia. This passage, in fact, sounds almost as if it were one of Thomas Mann's numerous accounts of creative brilliance flowering from the soil of social and cultural decay. But the points it establishes are borne out by Rilke's and especially Kafka's critical awareness of the nature and peculiarity of their immediate common heritage. 
I say especially with regard to Kafka, for being Jewish, he was doubly isolated in this new and swift current of the times, yet also doubly self-aware, particularly vis-à-vis the kind of German being used around him. Basically, as Kafka saw it, Prague German had become a rather stiff and petrified idiom spoken and written by a single class and unrefreshed for some time by a more living medium either from the surrounding countryside or from within the city itself. As a trained lawyer, Kafka called it, this is Kafka's own phrase for it, a language fit for public notices, (laughs) but was brilliantly able to exploit its ironies and create for himself that beautifully clear, sober German veiled with its icy pain of strangeness, so characteristic and so unnerving in its portrayal of casual reality. Rilke, starting out in a poetic, not a prose medium, had the opposite side, I think, of this coin to cope with. A flowery and effete lyricism, such as we find in his first collections. Laren Opfer, Sacrifice to the Lars or Laris of 1895, an advent two years later. Retrospectively, we can find some signs pointing in the direction of the poet-to-be, But to reach the achievement of Neue Gedichte, 1907-08, let alone the Duanese Elegien and Sonetta and Orpheus of the 1920s, must have entailed quite clearly genius and exceptional powers of self-transformation. But also, just as clearly, the ability and the necessity to undertake an arduous journey with heroic persistence. His poetic, cultural, and spiritual development can therefore be seen as parallel, I think, to his restless exile and wanderings. They were necessary to each other. In her book, Wege mit Rilke, Paths with Rilke, 1959, Lou Albert Lazard, a painter and close friend of the poet's Munich years, has some um, especially perceptive remarks on both Rilke's and Kafka's relation to Prague. She maintains that the nature of the place and its mixed cultural identity being such, they being born and bred there made them alles in Frage zu stellen, to question everything, to place everything under question. And then she has this passage. I'll give you a translation. Alone and defenseless, the individual stands over against the phenomena which, dismayed by anxiety, he attempts to penetrate. Common to both Rainer Maria Rilke and Franz Kafka is that they speak as if there were no one present to hear them. They speak to themselves, conscientiously tracing their sensations. They attempt to find paths through the inner thicket of their selves. What is astonishing about Rilke and Kafka is the direct and ruthless gaze which they focus upon themselves in complete objectivity as if they were simply one object among many. Since Lou Albert Hassad was not a native of Prague, one assumes that the information and insight she offers here were gathered from friends who were, undoubtedly Rilke himself, being prominent. What, however, emerges from her passage is a clear sense of individual, private isolation and vulnerability vis-à-vis the outside world that she finds typifies the Prague context, certainly for her, uh, um, uh, um, these two writers. And though there may well be an amount of circular arguing present as she moves between city, personality, and text, her knowledge of other central European cities would undoubtedly have given her a sufficiently accurate feel for major local differences. Prague, though always anonymous in Kafka's hands, is a source of local and existential angst, perplexing and often terrifying for his many protagonists. And there are sections of Rilke's Die Aufzeichnungen des Malte Lauritz Brigger, translated as the notebooks of, of, of Malte Lauritz Brigger, his one major prose work, which in their own way perfectly fit into this picture. Uh, though, of course, in, 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 in Malte's case, the city is not uh, uh, Prague, it's Paris. I'll come to that later on. And family backgrounds, plus the lack of upholstering, comforting local traditions, leave both writers exceptionally exposed and enfremded, alienated, as they do that other Central European writer, Joseph Conrad. 
The writing of such masters possesses a radicalness of vision inwards as well as outwards, Lou Albert, um, Albert Hazard is suggesting, firstly because there is nothing to protect them from the pressure of phenomena requiring recognition and interpretation, Secondly, because without an audience to deflect their attention, they follow their intuitions and responses inwards with total objectivity. From this, one can understand in retrospect how Rilke could arrive at the extraordinary objectivity of his imaginative approach to the outer world of persons, animals, landscapes, and art objects characteristic of the Neue Gedichte. Uh, but much else had to happen on his arduous journey in purely aesthetic and perceptual terms before that could really take place. Now, Rilke's journey was at one level clearly a constant search for what he termed Wahlheimaten, homes of one's own choice. Since in spite of his short period of actual marriage to the sculptor Clara Westhoff, spent at the artist's colony of Wolfsweder near Bremen, Throughout his adult life, he had no permanent address or house to call his own. For the most part, he lived in flats, hotels, country residences, sometimes castles owned by wealthy admirers and friends, or whatever room or pension was available and suitable. So there is a sense in which for most of his life he was heimatlos, without a home, though not obdachlos, without a roof over one's head. Um, the difference between the two German words is important. <coughs> For Heimatlos has a resonance and implication, Obdachlos doesn't. Uh, the latter is simply factual and physical. The former possesses connotations and usages indicating political refugeedom, loss of identity, or outcast status. So with the long-standing history of Central Europe in mind over the last 200 years, especially appropriate. And the word also modulates into the existential, even in a philosophical sense, as it does in the related words heimkehr, homecoming, and heimweh, longing for home, although heimweh is a stable uh, term from the Romantic tradition, uh, Navalis, Eichendorf, and so on, earlier in the 19th century. Uh, but these concepts uh, keep on recurring, you will find, in Rilke's poetry. For as Hans Egon Holthusen, among others, has pointed out, one of the poet's deepest urges, yet also tensions, was that of the Sehnsucht nach Sesshaftigkeit unter Menschen, the longing for a settled place among people, as opposed to uh, dem gebieterischen Bedürfnis nach Einsamkeit und Verborgenheit, the irresistible need for solitude and seclusion. Um, Holthusen, I think, quite rightly sees Rilke's life uh, in one's a very deep tension between these two kinds of, 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 of uh, needs and urges. And as a beautiful illustration of the latter need and its fulfillment, there is this short statement in a letter to the Countess Man uh, Manotsu uh, Solms Laubach, written in Paris on the 3rd of August 1908. By the way, says Rilke, apart from two short interruptions, I haven't spoken a word for weeks. My solitude is perfect at last, and I am inside my work like the kernel in the fruit. Und ich bin in der Arbeit wie der Kern in der Frucht. This last sentence, with its fine simile, is pure Rilke. Only Rilke could have written that kind of, 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 of scene uh, solitude and work in that particular way. And one notes what again is characteristic, the achievement, however fractured, of absolute solitude, which came about both at Schloss Duino and Chateau Musot and was crucial to the poet's greatest work. Also the uncanny ability he possessed, and so graphically illustrated here, of giving himself up to the creative processes as if these were those of pure nature, the kern in the frucht, the, 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 the kernel in the fruit. Indeed, Rilke was able to wait and wait, if need be, for the right moment to come and initiate him into his creative phases. And the solitude seems to have always been a necessary prelude to this. I can only think of three parallel cases to Rilke here. Wittgenstein in his Norwegian hut above the fjords, Yeats at Tour Balleli, 
a Nietzsche high up in the Swiss Engadin at Sils Maria writing Also Sprach Zarathustra. The inner as well as outer pattern of Rilke's life then, with its restless exile and wandering, is a paradigm of and for the 20th century poet, it seems to me. The homelessness, which is also spiritual, is the background and condition out of which the poetry springs. Including all this, however, it moves constantly to and celebrates the other side, so that in the seventh of the Duneser Elegien, we can read, Hier sein ist herrlich, being here is glorious. Where hier sein, as if straight from a Heidegger text, is written as one word. Because of this, it functions as a new holistic uh, concept. The celebration, however, is not easily earned. In fact, it is achieved at tremendous cost by, as Erich Heller would say, an enterter Geist, a disinherited spirit or mind. Here Rilke is part of a German tradition of extreme exposure and alienation going back to the Goethe of Die Leiden des Jungen Werthes and including Hölderlin with his famous query in his great poem Brot und Wein, Wozu Dichter in dürftige Zeit? To what purpose a poet in indigent times? And then you get Nietzsche, Kleist, Kafka, and the uh, recent uh, poet Paul Celan, who committed suicide in Paris. All of whom, in their different ways, were operating in what the existenzphilosophen were to call a grenzsituation, a frontier situation at the edge of things. Um, I'd, like to make, uh, um, I'd like to make this absolutely clear because I think that the German tradition, again going back to Goethe from this, gives you a series of poets, of, of, of great poets, and that who are really right at the edge of things. This, in part, accounts, I think, for their. Um, uh, what shall I call it, this, this accounts in, in, in part for their, for their major status because they are not, as I said earlier with regard to Kafka and Rilke in Prague, they're not upholstered. They seem to be much more kind of exposed than a lot of others I could think of. This is what I'm really saying. And the same I would argue for people like Beethoven, Brahms and so on, or Mahler, for instance. In Rilke's, uh, oh, oh, oh yes, and into this I think I may not have time to, I, I certainly won't have time to deal with this in, in, in any kind of, or in a way that it should be dealt with. Into this exposure goes the um, urgent um, philosophical questioning of the role of language and to what extent language is still able to do justice to experience or whether experience can now be translated into language. I couldn't say this when I was dealing with Goethe's Faust, but you get it in, I had to leave this section out, I'm afraid, but there's this scene where Faust translates in John's Gospel. Um, he, he tries to, to um, translate, Im, Im Anfang war das Wort, in, um, in the beginning was the word. And he says, this Faust, Ich kann das Wort uh, so hoch un, uh, unmöglich schätzen. Um, I can value the word, or I, can, or I can't value the word so highly. It's impossible for me. And there's, 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 um, there's a gap already uh, with the character of Faust between what you might call the function of language there and the experience that he is yearning uh, uh, for. And Goethe sees this quite clearly um, in, in, um, in the personage of Faust. Um, now, in Rilke's case, operating in the border region between the human and angelic, as in these lines following from the opening of uh, the first elegy, we get the natural connection back to our theme of, ho of homelessness. I'll give you a translation. Each single angel is terrifying. That is, ein jeder Engel ist schrecklich. That's how it almost begins. And so I restrain myself and swallow my dark sobbing's call of allurement. Are whom are we then able to make use of? Not angels, not people. And the sharply shrewd animals have already noticed that we are not very reliably at home in this interpreted world of ours. I'll give you this bit because I refer to the German here. Und die findigen Tiere, the, the shrewd animals, merken es schon, noted already, dass wir nicht sehr verlässlich zu Hause sind, that we are not very reliably at home uh, in der gedeuteten Welt, uh, in, in this interpreted world of ours. Now, this picture of a three-layered world of angels, humans, and animals is very Rilkean, 
especially his insight into animal consciousness and its remarkable sixth sense. The poet had a wonderful rapport with the animal world and its inhabitants, yet was also able to see its rightful place in the structure of things and its relation to the human without either sentimentalizing or Darwinizing. You only have to look at poems like Der Panther or Die Gazelle, the Gazelle, in, from uh, Neue Gedichte, and that are in his letters and accounts uh, of meetings with animals that are quite extraordinary. He had a special rapport with, um, with animals. Now, in this first elegy passage, what is also characteristic is the notation of the world in which man finds himself relatively homeless as being der Gedeutetenwelt, that is already interpreted, not pristine anymore. It is in this world that man is no longer at home. A world so constituted, so perceived, strikes me as having behind it a powerful awareness of that tradition of interpretation known as hermeneutics, which derives from German theology and biblical criticism, what was known to the Victorians as the higher criticism, and was instituted first by J.G. Eichhorn, 1752 to 1827, and then above all by Friedrich Schleiermacher, 1768 to 1834, and then continued by the great Wilhelm Diltai, 1833 to 1911, with his new theory of interpreting the arts based on experience, erlebnis, creative expression of this experience, and a special verstehen, or comprehending of this, that was and had to be non-scientific. That is to say, it was the opposite of what Diltai calls eclairon. He says that in the uh, natural sciences, the, the way in which the mind operates is to explicate, eclairon. But with the, to understand works of art and culture, you have to Verstehen. You, you have to understand them and empathize with them in a totally new way. And he worked out a complicated theory uh, about this that I can't go into at, at the moment. On the other hand, in Rilke's elegy, it is the accumulation of, of interpretations that seems to prevent us being at home in the world like the animals, so that the author of the elegies, while constantly aware of this accumulation and its unsteadying, estranging potential, consistently tries to break back through to a totalizing, pristine vision of life and the cosmos. He had basically arrived there, I think, by 1908, when he finished writing the Neue Gedichte second part, and most certainly by 1910, when Malte Lauritzbrigger was published. From then until 1922, by which time the elegies and sonnets to Orpheus were finished, several th significant things happened that we shall take account of. But the poet's way of seeing his phenomenology and substantially his own achieved Weltanschauung, or way in which he views the world, were, I think, in place. Now, two crucial milestones mark the path to this. Rilke's two journeys to Russia, in the company of his first determining and greatest love, Lou Andreas Salome, in April to June 1899, and in August to October 1900 and his time as Rodin's secretary in Paris from the end of August 1902. In a letter written on the 17th of March 1926, less than a year before his death, the poet looked back over these events in a decisively characterizing way. I'll give you the English. Russia, you will recognize that in books like my Stundenbuch, the book of hours, became to a certain extent the foundation of all I have experienced and responded to just as from the year 1902, Paris, incomparable Paris, became the basis for my creating forms. Here we get two routes out of Prague and its provincialities, both total erlebnisse, or total experiences, as it were, permeating, f formative, and lasting. The first essential to the poet's religious, existential, experiential side, the second crucial to his shaping artistic drive, the will to form, as he specifically puts it there. Um, there is a connection with the second, I think, also back to French symbolism as well. 
In Rilke's formulation, we can see the presence of two mutually enriching halves of the poetic personality, two creatively interlocking complementarities that make up a greater whole necessary to the first great breakthrough in his writing that occurs during his first Paris residence and that is responsible for Neue Gedichte and Malta. The poet's first Russian journey with, with Lou, who was brought up in St. Petersburg as the daughter of a high-ranking general and so spoke fluent Russian, was his first real experience of abroad. And under Lou's tutelage, he himself started to learn the language and got so far that he was able to read and translate bits of Chekhov, Dostoevsky, and Lermontov, even to composing some poems in Russian. If you get the full German text of Rilke's collected works, you will see Russian poems there by him. Rilke prepared himself carefully for the journey, as was his wont, began to identify closely with the Russian soul and its religion to the point where he became convinced that he had lived in Moscow in a previous existence, and via Lou got entry to aristocratic and highly cultivated circles, whereby he was able to visit Tolstoy at Yasnaya Polyana, had his portrait taken by Pasternak's painter father, and stayed at several country houses on estates from where he began to be overwhelmed by the open spaces of the Russian landscape. The Russian writer he knew best, especially at this stage, was Dostoevsky. And this is interesting, since Dostoevsky, like Strindberg, was being intensively read and studied in Germany around the turn of the century, and even more so in the pre-war years, as he was felt to be, and was, a major influence on the growing expressionism of those years. In fact, there was a Dostoevsky cult, and all his works were translated into German before 1914. The novelist's emphasis on inner conversion and regeneration was viewed as reinforcing the expressionist need for and urging of inner transformation or wandlung, a current expressionist term, if mankind was to repel and survive the surrounding social chaos with its mechanization, positivism, and heavy materialism, against all of which Dostoevsky stood out like a prophetic voice. The expressionists likewise stressed a concept and state of action consequent on Wandlung, namely Aufbruch, or breaking up and sudden departure, to something new, not progressive reform, and the Dostoevsky hero illustrated this supremely. You can think of Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment and what happens to him. Rilke, again, was by no means the only artist of his generation who visited Russia and expected some kind of spiritual transformation under Russian skies. The powerful expressionist woodcarver Ernst Barlach senior to the poet by only five years, traveled to Russia a few years after him in 1906 with colossal results. In a brilliant account of German expressionism, Walter H. Sokol in The Writer in Extremis has this to say of that journey. The Wandlung which Barlach experienced on a trip to Russia was for him a liberation and assertion of religious feelings and creative powers in one. Russia gave him the courage to acknowledge and express the stresses and ecstasies of his deeper self. This breakthrough of religious feeling, that's Barlach's own, uh, own phrase there, released his long-suppressed artistic energy. The concept breakthrough that he's using uh, in German Durchbruch um, is one with a considerable history, certainly as far back as Nietzsche, and retrospectively is employed with regard to all art that exhibits a sudden and significant kind of development. Thus Beethoven's Eroica and Wagner's Tristan would each be characterized as a Durchbruch in terms of their composer's own developments and in terms of musical expression as a whole. As a whole. In this sense, Durchbruch and the closely related ideas of Wandlung and Aufbruch attained renewed urgency and relevance in the expressionistic years preceding, during, and after World War I. And nothing is more typical of all this and embodies a truly massive Durchbruch than Rilke's Dunese Elegien. I see, therefore, the Dunese Elegien as being uh, um, uh, um, emblematic of this kind of movement um, in German uh, uh, poetry, culture, and uh, the expression, expressionism, as you probably know, went into film and painting, not only uh, literature. 
Now, in the winter of 1911, when alone at Schloss Duino, on cliffs above the Gulf of Trieste, Rilke experienced his first breakthrough when he suddenly and unexpectedly heard the now-famous voice from the heart of the Bora, the cold, dry, northeasterly wind blowing at that time of the year in the upper Adriatic. His friend, patroness, and the owner of Duino, Princess uh, Marie von Turnuntaxis, has described via the poet himself what took place. Early one day, he received a troublesome business letter. He wanted to settle it quickly, so he had to bother himself with figures and other dry matters of fact. Outside, a strong borer was blowing, but the sun shone and the sea radiated with blue light as if woven over with silver. Rilke climbed down to the bastions of the castle, which, stretching east and west when facing land, were connected by means of a narrow path at the foot of the castle. Here the cliffs descend steeply, roughly 200 feet, straight into the sea. Rilke was walking up and down, quite sunk in his thoughts, since an answer to the letter occupied him. Then suddenly, in the midst of his rumination, he stood stock still, for it seemed to him as though a voice had called out to him in the roaring of the storm, Wer, wenn ich schrie, hörte mich denn aus der Engel Ordnungen? Who, if I cried out, would hear me among the ranks of the angels? Now this desperate wonder in question, tied to a cry and addressed to the angels, then became the opening lines of his first elegy. A few more lines appeared of their own accord, and Rilke, never without his notebook, jotted them down returned to his study up in the castle, wrote first of all his business letter, and then crossed straight over into the world of the elegy, so that by the evening it was completely finished. And he posted it off immediately to Princess Marie, then staying in Vienna, and she read it out to Hoffmannsthal and the young philosopher Rudolf Kastner, the future dedicatee of the Eighth Duino Elegy. The last six elegies were written in an incredible week only at Chateau uh, Musotte between the 7th and, 50 and 14th of February, 1922, a second breakthrough, if ever there was one. And as soon as the 10th and last was finished, a letter went off communicating this fact to Princess Marie, who quite naturally was made the overall dedicatee. Everything, this is the English, but I'll read the German, but it's very short, because you get more of Rilke coming out of it. Everything accomplished in a few days. It was a nameless storm, a hurricane of the spirit, just like that time uh, at Duino. Everything that's fiber and tissue in me has cracked. Thoughts of food never occurred to me. God knows who nourished me. Alles in ein paar Tagen, es war ein namenloser Sturm, ein Orkan im Geist, wie damals auf Duino. Alles, was Phase in mir ist und Gewebe hat gekracht. An Essen war gar nicht zu denken. Gott weiß, wer mich genährt hat. Um, this is now from the other side of the breakthrough. Um, and Durchbruch, one should not forget to state, is a term also employed in German Existenzphilosophy and percolated through into all the arts and general cultivated consciousness. Kierkegaard, for instance, where you get it, was translated into German before 1914, and Rilke himself visited Denmark in 1904, had started learning Danish earlier that year in Rome, and was soon translating the Danish philosopher's letters to his fiancée. He was very interested in Kierkegaard. Uh, German existentialism, incidentally, develops hand-in-hand hand with expressionism throughout the period 1910, say, to around 1925, with many cross-connecting features. And the whole complex of Wandlung, Aufbruch, and Durchbruch was therefore very pervasive. Now, the other milestone the uh, at the port's time in Paris as Rodin's secretary, uh, we now have to look at. So we have to backtrack a little. First of all, to Clara Westhoff, the young sculptor who became Rilke's wife, for she was a former pupil of Rodin's, and it was through her that Rilke was able to establish the necessary contact to the great sculptor in connection with the monograph on his work he had been commissioned to write by Insel Verlag. As we know so well about the unexpected and dramatic impact Rodin made on the young poet, um, because the latter himself made us aware of it so, I, I mean, we know this, so there's no need uh, to do anything but just state it for the moment. But uh, one has to uh, uh, repeat what is uh, crucial here. The, f the famous phrase that, that, that Rilke 
used himself and put into Malte um, Lauritz Brigger as well. Ich lerne sehen. I am learning how to see. Um, and the implication here is that he is discovering how to see for the first time, as it were. Uh, Rodin has been teaching him that, but also he was teaching him that it was essential to work and work. Uh, in, and thereby he supplied him with a new work ethic. After that, I can think of no other poet who gazes and looks more intently or concentrates harder through his gazing and looking than Rilke. Um, as an instance of this, one can turn to the magnificent uh, Panther poem composed in 1903 and the first of the Neugedichte to be written. Rodin got the young poet a free pass to go to the Jardin de Plantes from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. before the public entered so that he could study and meditate on the animal undisturbed. So he went there morning after morning watching the panther. Um, and the same for the beautiful uh, Gazzella poem. He is beginning to perceive, respond to, get inside phenomena in a new way a difficult, arduous process that is briefly recapitulated as late as the ninth of the Duanesa Elegian, which begins with an urgent uh, evocation of the once only of life in its passage towards death and the equally urgent questioning of what, if anything, we can take with us. This is the very short quote. Ah, into that other dimension, what, alas, can one take over with one? not the faculty of gazing at things, that slowly acquired faculty. Ach, in den anderen Bezug, wehe, was nimmt man hinüber, nicht das Anschauen, das hier langsam erlernte. Not the faculty of gazing at things, uh, I'm sorry, Anschauen or looking at and considering is something only gradually earned. And the word Bezug here, as everywhere else in Leitrilke, has its own special meaning not that of normal German usage. Here it expresses a quite mysterious reference point suggestive of a different mode of existence, another world, in short, which the poet is on the one hand intimate with, but on the other is unable or, un or unwilling to pin down. In fact, this merging of intimate closeness with strangely distant otherness, then back again like a camera panning down and then switching to a, soft, to a wide soft focus and back, is very Rilkean, I think, and characteristic, say, of the unusual and unforgettable description of Die Weite Landschaft der Klagen, the vast landscape of lamentation in the last of the elegies, number 10, based on the Egyptian valley of the kings the poet visited, and which is really the landscape of, um, of death um, and of the other world. It reminds me of some of the sequences from films by Jean Cocteau, in a way. Um, and I was interested to find, uh, I can't go into this, that if you look at um, that part of his evocation of this landscape, um, he names the stars. Rilke was fascinated by stars. They have very um, um, evocative but strange names. And one of them is like um, a raised and, 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 and um, blessing hand with the, with the letter M standing for mothers. And I see a definite relationship there between that part of the 10th elegy and, and uh, the scene I talked about in my second lecture, uh, um, uh, Faust descent to the Mütten in Goethe's Faust. On reflection, however, the debt to Rodin was preceded by the unconscious preparation entered on through the painter's colony at Worpswede, and the association not only with Clara Westhoff, but with the original and talented Paula Modersohn Becker, to mark whose early death in childbed, Rilke composed a remarkable requiem in 1908. She painted um, a remarkable portrait of Rilke as well. Like Goethe, but possessing a very different sensibility, Rilke was clearly an Augenmensch, an eye person, and visually highly gifted, with an extraordinary sense of color that enabled him to recognize Cezanne's genius as soon as anybody. 
But undoubtedly, his close contact with practicing painters at Worpswede gave him an approach to an understanding of the painter's art which previously didn't have. It's fascinating, for instance, to know that one of the reasons he gave Clara for wanting to marry her, I think it's quite amusing, was visualizing alongside her as a sculptor. (laughs) I often long to listen to your gazing and to gaze with you. Ich sehne mich oft dein Schauen zu hören und mit dir zu schauen. Now, there's another side to Rilke's learning how to see that goes more or less parallel to that sculptural and aesthetic side he inherited from Rodin, and this is what he learned from the city of Paris itself. Paris, the the incomparable, as he called it in the late letter already quoted. In contrast to his daily visits out to Rodin's Meudon, his small rented apartment not far from the uh, Luxembourg in the Rue Tullier, surrounded for him mainly by hospitals, student quarters, and poverty-stricken alleys and side streets, transformed Paris into dieser schreckliche Stadt, this terrible city, this terrifying city. This is in Rilke's early days now, as just as he got to Paris. In spite of St. Petersburg, Berlin, and Vienna, where poverty and decay must also have been pretty apparent, it was in Paris that Rilke was seriously confronted, it seems, with what we would now call inner-city decay. Of course, at this time, he was short of money, without friends and connections, apart from Rodin, so was undoubtedly feeling the full weight of metropolitan anonymity and isolation in an area that made him focus all around on his immediate surroundings. And Rilke, always incredibly sensitive to and empathetic with each environment he inhabited, was appalled. And so Malte Lauritz Brigger, the hero of the prose work he started uh, gestating only a little later, and the composition of which overlaps with the Neue Gedichte, a second part, also exclaims into his notebook in a different way, Ich lerne sehen, I'm learning how to see. But what's seeing as compared to the other? The Paris that Malta describes in his notebooks is basically that discovered and haunted by Strindberg a decade earlier, from 1894 to 96, when after the breakup of his second marriage, he stayed alone near the Luxembourg Gardens like Rilke, steeping himself in Swedenborg and practicing alchemy so fervently that he had to be hospitalized for the terrible burns to his hands at the Hôpital de Salpêtrière. Um, Yeats apparently saw him there with Max Dautendai, a German poet, and a silent man, he says, whom I discovered to be Strindberg and who was looking for the philosopher's stone. Some of this second type of seeing gets into the Neue Gedichte, the underside of Paris, as it were, in one poem from part one titled Morg, in others from part two, such as the Irren, the Lunatics, the Bettler, the Beggars, Leichenwäsche, Washing the Corpse, and Der Blinder, the Blind Man, all figures from the, from the world of a Baudelaire. But in the main, the second kind of awareness, together with its subject matter, comes into uh, Malta, in its extended uh, portrait, as I've already hinted, of Paris. In the last analysis, however, one cannot really separate these two ways of seeing, products as they are of the same poetic sensibility. Um, But the Baudelarian, so to speak, does impinge later through the impact of the metropolis, um, although even in the Neugedichte we can trace crossings over from one side to the other which point forward to a deeper, I think, unification of sensibility, almost a kind of dialectical relationship, I think, between the two sides here. Um, Into the realm of the beautiful, just give one example, and the legendary past, we find disturbing harmonies creeping in at times, like those at the end of the stunning poem, Die Courtesana, the courtesan, with its masterly evocation of a a Venetian ambience saturated in erotic mystery and a somewhat frightening allure poised on the edge of anticipated decline, just the last line. Let me return to Rodin now and um, Rilke's creation of the Neue Gedichte, Um, which the Germans regard as a new genre of lyric. Um, They call them the Dingedichte, the thing or object poems. Uh, This is interesting, or at least I'm going to make it what I think is interesting, because it's typically German, I think, this this penchant for what you might call categorizing. Um, and the need and ability the need and ability to arrange phenomena, activities, outlooks or ideas into firm classes um, or types. 
thereby bringing order, if only provisional, into, into the surrounding chaos, or philosophically framed, making use of a priori uh, um, um, conceptions or categories, is what they are, applied by the mind to sense impressions. Um, as, and this ties back, I think, to one of the things I was saying about the German tradition uh, in my first talk, um, the German capacity for conceptualization and abstract thinking. As empiricists, this side of the channel, we don't do this, or we tend not to do this, I find. We leave the impressions impinge on us haphazardly and unstructuredly. We don't organize them apart from associatively. The Germans are always doing this. This is absolutely fundamental. And, and this is one way in which the two traditions really, really divide themselves. And, and, and it took me a long time to find out exactly how and why this was so. Um, but that is very important. And this is just a, a, a typical instance uh, of German thinking, is that they give to, in, particularly, in, but not only intellectual things, um, to all kinds of things, they divide them into certain categories or, 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 or have to kind of put names to them. We tend to let things run. Now, maybe there are advantages in both points, but I'm just bringing out now the German side. Um, anyway, the Dingedicht that Rilke created dispenses with the lyrical eye, the confessional eye, or drives him right to the edge of the poem, as in a Cezanne uh, painting as opposed to Van Gogh. Um, and um, what results is the opposite of the young Goethe's Erlebnis lyric, which is the poetry of experience and is very, very uh, subjective and personal. I'm not saying hereby that the, the sensibility of Rilke um, isn't in the poem. It's very deeply in the poem. But the impression gained is that you see directly the panther, the gazelle, the, 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 uh, the, the hortensias, or, or whatever the flowers are, uh, immediately and in a new and, 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 and stunning way. But, but it's Rilke's sensibility, quite obviously, that is at work there bringing this out. Instead, we get a cultivated and unusual empathy with the subject of a poem, be it animal, person, landscape, flowers, or work of art. An identification, as it were, via total imaginative sympathy so that the poet disappears into his poem like the Chinese master into his hanging landscape scroll. And the upshot is not only poems about things, but poems that are things like pieces of Rodinesque sculpture. Um, in a 1905 lecture on Roda, Rilke discloses uh, to us, quite casually, as it were, in a series of rhetorical questions, the amazing degree of aesthetic sophistication and parallel phenomenological insight he now possesses. I'll just give it English here. Is not everything, says Rilke, that we know surface? Is it possible for us to perceive what is interior otherwise than by means of surface? Our joy in a fruit, an animal, a landscape, isn't that the explanation, interpretation, appropriation of a particular surface? And what we call spirit and soul and love, isn't that all only a gentle alteration in the small surface of a face held close? And mustn't whoever will grant us this hold to the palpable and its corresponding means, namely the form that he is able to grasp and feel for. Now, the awareness of an extraordinary sensitivity to surface and color is everywhere apparent in the Neue Gedichte, and some poems, such as the group centered on Schaff Cathedral, for instance, um, uh, or, say, the, the uh, Die Laute, the lute, its body, compared with the shape and texture of a ripe fig, um, all exploit the poet's newfound delight in surface, sheen, play of light and color, which doubtless owes something to the Impressionists, probably more to Cezanne. Um, of course, Rilke, as we know, is anything but mere surface. Yet the thing I'd like to stress here is that not every poet is able to extract from surfaces what Rilke is able to do. Um, for not only is his imaginative and delicate bringing alive of these something unusual in itself, but into this process, he introduces shades of meaning and depth, gentle and exquisite surprises of reach and reference, such as we find happening whenever mirrors, for instance, appear in his poems. 
Rilke, like Kafka, was fascinated by the poetry, mystery, and, and, and unsettling quality of mirrors. They begin to lead inwards or into a different dimension. Uh, as in three of the poems, um, for instance, one can mention in, in, uh, in Die Neue Gedichte, the uh, Die Flamingos, Der Pavillon, and uh, Die Dame vor dem Spiegel, The Lady in Front of the Mirror. And they constitute a path into that new space and world that is called by him Weltinnenraum, the world's inner space, and that the later poetry will do so much to reveal and explore. Let us now, however, peer a little more carefully at the phenomenology behind the Dingedichter. Clearly, a reorientation of the poet's sensory organization, and not merely the visual on its own, was necessary. B. Kallert, a student, incidentally, of the Zen scholar Eugen Herigel, Zen in the Art of Archery, has named this a new Bildung des Erkenntnisorgans, a new formation of the organ of perception, which is in line with Keter Hamburger's definition, Erkenntnistheorie in Form von Lyrik, a new epistemological theory in the form of lyrical poetry. And Rilke himself regarded the Neue Gedichte as the product of, quote Rilke himself, eines gesteigerten Anschauens, an intensified gazing at. All the more surprising, or perhaps not, when we reflect back on the poet's interlinked <coughs> stages of development to find at least one passage from the earlier Stundenbuch, Book of Hours, uh, where we get uh, an anticipation of the creation of the Dingedichter. Um, I'll quote the English. It's just a bit now. It's just a passage of, of three lines, but it's very interesting and important. Thus a surplus of things flows to you, and just as the upper basins of fountains constantly overflow into the lowest bowl like locks of loosened hair, so abundance falls to you in your valleys when things and thoughts overflow and mingle. Rilke loved fountains and got to know them well in the land of fountains, Italy. This was incidentally before he went to Russia. Hence the lovely and popular Römische Fontaine, a Roman fountain, um, encountered in the grounds of the Palazzo Borghese, uh, which I think has its origins in the passage I've given you the translation of, as does the deeper image of the fountain um, appropriated to the bird calls of spring in the magnificent picture of seasonal progress at the, be given, at the beginning of the seventh Duanes elegy. Um, I'll, I'll quote a bit of this for you because um, I want to comment something on it. I want to say something on it. Oh, and the spring world would understand this. There is no spot that would not carry the note of annunciation. First, that tiny rising yet questioning sound that with increasing silence a pure affirming day will encircle far and wide. Then the steps upwards, the calling steps upwards to the dreamed-of temple of the future. Then the trills, fountains that anticipate in their surging jets the downward fall in their play of promises. And ahead of them now, the summer. Um, in all three instances just mentioned or quoted, um, the fountain is a rich and powerful image, image of life's and nature's abundance. Yeats's life's own self-delight from ancestral houses in meditations of time, in time of civil war. And an image of life's dynamic unity at its ideal best, containing a play of opposites, I think, in the upward and the downward movement. This is mirrored in the fountain's as I say, rise and fall, the drängenden Strahl, as it's called in the German I didn't read to you, surging jet upwards and das Fallen, the downward fall. Um, indeed, the tenth and last elegy of the cycle ends with a similar image to finalize the whole group. And though the fountain isn't mentioned as such, it seems to be absolutely implicit. I'll give you the English and then the German. It's only four lines. And we who think of happiness as rising would feel the stirring of emotion enough almost to overwhelm us when a happy thing falls. Und wir, die an steigendes Glück denken, empfinden die Rührung, die uns beine bestürzt, wenn ein glückliches fällt. Now, this is happiness, the other side of sadness, uh, death and elegy. 
Um, it comes just after the landscape of the dead passage, based on the Valley of the Kings that I was uh, uh, that I mentioned to you, um, and it is very interesting. I just had to comment on this. Um, these are the four lines then with which the Dunes Elegian um, altogether end, and in a muted way, I think climax. And it's significant, I think, that they appear as a separate quatrain. If you look at that elegy, they are, they are printed separately. Um, and that the opposing verbs, steigen to climb and fallen, are italicized. In fact, italicizations are frequent throughout all the elegies as a way of noting emphasis and or urgency, since Rilke in these poems is more certainly formulating his credo, I think. Um, and this quatrain uh, one can regard as a kind of summation, um, a summation that is in the form of a kind of Nicolaus Cusanus type coincidentia oppositorum, a coincidence of opposites, uh, deliberately preceded in the elegy by the dead imagined as awakening and communicating um, with us. And there I just had to say that right the way throughout Rilke, there's a constant sense of the fluidity of the boundaries separating death from life. The one flows into the other. And he has a, and he, two things, I want have time to talk about this, but I've just mentioned this. Rilke had a, his own unique ontology of death, that every person um, goes through his own death in his own particular way. And he says this lovely phrase of his in English, death is the side of life turned away from us. Death is the side of life, turned away from us. Um, anyway, to retrace our steps, um, a suggested though less profound union of opposites um, occurs in the last line of the passage, I quoted you the English translation of, from the Stundenbuch, wenn Dinge und Gedanken übergehen, that's the German, when things and thoughts overflow and mingle. Prior to the meeting with Rodin, then, there is already present here the suggestion that things and thoughts can mingle or cross over to create the fountain's abundance. And in short, it's out of this process, I think, that the gesteigerten Anschauen, the intensified gazing we mentioned a little earlier, derives. And it would seem via a kind of perceptual dialectics, which has much in common with Goethe's Polarität und Steigerung, polarity and intensification. Now, I didn't have time to, uh, to go into this when I was talking to you about Goethe, but, it is, but his um, central doctrine of polarity and intensification um, is illustrated in Faust's progress. What I was really talking about, in some sense, when talking about Faust, and so not using this, this particular phrase to represent Faust's progress, is this polarity and Steigerung. That is to say, you get the two souls of Faust, as it were, uh, um, dialectically meeting with each other, one in the form of Mephisto himself. Out of this comes all kind of complexities, also fallbacks, but eventual, eventually a Steigerungsprozess, a kind of heightening or progressive heightening. And this is based on uh, Goethe's theory, as in Nicholas Cusanus, that life really is to be understood um, in terms of a, a concept of mutual complementarities or polar opposites, Blake's contraries. Out of the contraries, you get progression. And you get this coming, I think, really into um, Rilke's way of seeing. And he says um, this. Um, on the 8th of March, 1907... When Rilke was between the first and second parts of the Neue Gedichte, he wrote to his wife, Clara, from Paris, about Anschauen in this way. Um, looking at things is such a wonderful thing, which we know so little about. While doing this, we are turned wholly towards the outer world. This is a, a bit complex, but I'll try and make it clear. Uh, yet just when we are doing this most thoroughly, things seem to take place in us which have longingly waited not to be observed. And while this is being affected in us without our assistance, these things being intact and strangely anonymous, their meaning rises up in the objects out there as convincing 
and powerful. The only powerful name, the only possible names in which we blissfully and reverently recognize what has been happening within us without ourselves being able to reach up to it. Now, in this second long sentence, Rilke is describing a highly complex process of perception, which is extremely difficult but necessary, I think, to, pit, to try to pin down. He seems to be implying a subtle and unconscious interchange between outer and inner, followed or rather parallel by a movement back outwards. Likewise unconscious, whereby the nameless things inwardly taking place result in their meaning being projected onto the requisite objects, so that it surfaces in them in the form of particular names so irresistibly valid as to admit of no others. Through these names, it seems, we are made conscious of the process that has been happening within us without our being able to get in touch with it. What Rilke describes taking place inside us is set in action, he indicates, when our focus of attention on the external world is totally engaged, so that these shy creatures of the imagination or inner perception can only emerge although they have longingly waited for this, when they are completely unobserved. That's the point. They have their own secretive life, only coming forth when we are otherwise distracted, as it were, since they hate to be seen, although they long to emerge. As such, they are untouched and unpersonalized, operating beyond any interference from us, and when we become aware of what they mean as names out there, what Rilke, I believe, is referring to is, and you would all know this, and as imagination bodies forth the form of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. That's uh, Mitzmanite's dream, of course. But Rilke goes, I think, one farther than Shakespeare here. The local habitation and the name enable us to realize retrospectively, as it were, what has been going on inside us prior to the localizing and the naming. And this is a source of felicity and reverence. Now, really, in some way, Rilke's poetry uh, embodies and illustrates this. Now, in his highly perceptive book, Rilke's Larische Landschaft, Rilke's Laric, you know, the Lars and Limurs uh, from Latin mythology, landscape, 1975, the Rudolf Steiner scholar and critic Rudolf Eppelsheimer has this, uh, talks about the poet's conversion of abstract, concrete things to names, names to a dimension beyond, and as he puts it, um, den Übergang vom Nomen zum Numen, the uh, the, the transition from name to Newman. He thinks that, that Rilke's Newmanist qualities come in in this particular way. And he uses the term Larish or Laric, as in the title of his book, to refer to, the, uh, to this uh, um, dimension. And of course, uh, what he's referring to are the Roman household deities called Lares et Penates. And um, this is used by Rilke himself in the title of his second volume of verse, if you remember, Larenopfer, Sacrifice to the Lars, even as early as this. And in this connection, we have to remember that the Laris were not only household or tutelary deities in the strict sense, but their range extended equally over the immediate environs of villa or farm. And this means adjacent terrain. Thus their powers apply applied to nearby roads or crossroads, as in Laris Viales, Laris of the Roads, and Laris Compitalis, Laris of the Crossroads. Now, Eppelheimer's stimulus to this undoubtedly derives in some measure from Rilke himself in the famous much-quoted letter he wrote to his Polish translator, Witold von Hulewicz, very shortly before his death, in, on the 13th of November 1925, when he's trying to tell him as much as he can about the substance of the difficult Dunis Elegian. And in English he says this. This is Rilke. Even for our grandfathers, a house of founding a familiar tower, their very clothes, their coat, was infinitely more, infinitely more intimate. 
almost every object a vessel in which they found something human or added their morsel of humanity. Now, from America, empty and different things crowd over to us, counterfeit things, the various dummies. The lived and living things, the things that share our thoughts, these are on the decline and can no more be replaced. We are perhaps the last to have known such things. The responsibility rests with us not only to keep remembrance of them, that would be but a trifle and unreliable, but also their human or laric, larish value. Laric in the sense of household gods. That's the end of Rilke's quote. Notice, too, here the poet's awareness of things, both modern counterfeits crowding marketplace and household, and those still possessing a traditional patina of intimacy and humanity, with the latter, however, in decline. Rilke is an eloquent witness, I think, here to the, to the whole process of decline, but in his poetry, I think, one of his roles is that of regaining, or rather re-establishing, recreating the intimate in an increasingly estranged world. He is the great poet of human and cosmic intimacy in an age of dominating exile. In the whole of its passage, it's important to realize that he identifies the human with Laric value, and both qualities or dimensions with the traditional things whose supplanting he so laments. Patently, in his mind, the human is indissolubly linked with the Laric, the one implying the other, and one sees here between the lines, as it were, yet quite clearly, suggestions of how to resacralize one's surroundings, essentially what Rilke's own poetry itself so notably does. I think I'd better finish there because... Um, I've gone 10 minutes over time. Thank you very much.